Before we start, a warning. This podcast contains descriptions of domestic violence, which some listeners may find distressing. Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. A traumatic brain injury is an injury that affects how the brain works. It is caused by hits, jolts, or bumps to the head. It can cause depression, anxiety, and memory loss, and it makes thinking clearly much more difficult. Brain injury receives a lot of attention when it happens in sports, but much less so when it happens in the context of intimate partner violence. Yet, many women are suffering from repeated brain injuries carried out by their partners. Not recognizing and not treating them can have disastrous consequences. I am Monica Kweiser, Head of Social Policy at the OECD, hosting the second episode in our podcast series, Truth Hurts. My guest today is Eve Villera, Associate Professor in Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. In this episode, we will discuss how to recognize and why it is so important to address brain trauma in women who are survivors of domestic abuse. Eve, you've been pioneering medical research on the effects of domestic violence on women's brains, something that nobody else has done before. Can you tell us about how you discovered this issue? It was really personal experience watching and listening to the stories of the women around me as I was doing volunteer work in a women's shelter in graduate school. I was in graduate school in neuropsychology, so I was learning about brain behavior relationships and, of course, you know what may happen if people sustain brain injury. And then as I was volunteering in the shelter, I heard the stories of women who were being abused and they may be stomped on the head with work boots, they may be thrown downstairs, thrown out windows, you know, punched violently in the head repeatedly. And we also know just historically that women who have experienced partner violence very commonly report emotional problems such as depression and anxiety or stress symptomatology. They also report problems with focusing, concentrating, or even sleep problems. And all of those problems are things that one might witness after someone has experienced a, a traumatic brain injury. So it made sense to me that maybe women were experiencing sustaining traumatic brain injuries from their partners. And so I decided, well, let's see, what do we know about this? And when I did a search, a literature search, absolutely nothing came up. So at that point I said, wow, this seems crazy. This is an obvious important area of research and how can we not know anything about it? And so I proposed it to my dissertation advisor and committee and they luckily <laughs> agreed to allow me to pursue that as, as my dissertation. And so that's how I got started. And what were your findings when you first started working on this? Did you have difficulties convincing the research community around you that this was an important topic? I actually did not. Whenever I approached people, they didn't necessarily think of it ahead of time. But when I mentioned it, they're like, wow, yeah, that makes sense. And they were happy to work with me. And I think also the fact that I was already engaged with them and their community, it wasn't, I was just some 
researcher in a white lab coat coming and saying, hey, I want to give some, administer some questionnaires to these people who are suffering and, and who've experienced violence. Now, since I have done this, I mean, now over the years, there's definitely a group of us who are growing, who are looking at this. And really some of that change has happened, I think, literally in the last few years. But it's been great. I mean, I'm, I'm super excited about the fact that now we are growing in numbers because there's so much work that needs to be done. And what are the things that you found out about this particular brain trauma of women who are survivors of domestic violence? Honestly, I was a little shocked because I knew just from, if, if you know what the definition of a brain injury is, And you hear the stories, you can say, wow, this woman's clearly sustained a brain injury. So when I actually interviewed 99 women and 74% of the women reported at least one brain injury from their partners. So the other thing that I include is not just traumatic brain injuries, which is some sort of hit or jolt or blow to the brain that causes some change in consciousness or brain function. I also included an alteration in consciousness that may result from strangulation because that's also another form of potentially acquired brain injury. And so 74% of the women reported at least one brain injury from either something like strangulation or a hit to the head or a jolt to the brain. And what's even worse was that 51% sustained repetitive brain injuries from their partners. And For the women who reported repetitive, some of them may have said it was one, it was two or three or four, or maybe 10, like they could count them. But for some women, it was too many to count. They may say, well, I just don't know. It was just too many. And so I would have to say, okay, well, could you say, like, was it once a week, once a month? And they might say, no, it was a couple of times a week for two years. So it was clearly clearly for a lot of these women, a tremendous problem and that they were sustaining repetitive brain injuries from their partners. And for the most part, these were going completely unrecognized. If they sustain a severe brain injury, maybe they would end up in the hospital. But even then, I will tell you, there was a case of a woman who said that she was unconscious for, it was at least a day or two, And she was just in her own home, in her bed. And her partner, I guess, was just waiting for her to wake up. That was clearly a, a severe brain injury. And I don't think she necessarily got medical attention for that. And why is it important to know more about brain trauma? Now, now that you found this out, what is it that one can do? So people in shelters, the doctors, but maybe also police, government, what can be done or what do you think needs to be urgently done? That's a Great question. We could probably talk forever on this. There's so much I think that really needs to be done. But I think one of the first things is just for women to recognize that they actually have sustained brain injuries because that will help. The other thing that I discovered in that first study was that the more brain injuries a woman had, the more trouble she had on performing tasks of memory learning and cognitive flexibility. So that affects your everyday functioning. And also the more brain injuries a woman had, the higher score she had on ratings of depression, anxiety, worry, and PTSD symptomatology. That's going to affect how you can perform and how you do your daily chores, your, your activities of daily living. 
And for most women, they don't necessarily realize that this is something from their partner. And so when the partner says, you're stupid, you, you can't do anything, you'll never survive on your own, or the woman says, oh my gosh, I'm so depressed. You know, there are serious consequences for having problems with basically thinking, remembering, learning, being able to plan, and then being depressed on top of that. It's so difficult to get out of some of these relationships to begin with, if women want to anyway. And then you put that on top of it. And that makes it even worse because then you believe everything that your partner has just told you, right? So part of it is just letting women understand that, well, no, this isn't just kind of you being dumb or whatever you may be being told, or or maybe whatever you're just thinking because you're unable to do certain things or certain things are so difficult for you, things that you used to be able to do. I mean, if we could just start, first of all, if we think about shelters and the agencies that are set up to help women who have experienced partner violence, virtually none of them are screening or looking to determine whether or not women had sustained brain injuries. And they're also not set up to treat a woman who may have sustained a brain injury. So if a woman comes to a shelter, for example, she's got her kids and maybe she's just sustained a brain injury and she has a history of others, she may not be responding as well as she should. She may not seem cooperative because she's got brain injuries and it's harder for her to quote unquote be cooperative or maybe she's not getting the information because when the staff are telling her you need to basically find a place to live. You need to get your children into school. You need to file for an order of protection. You need to look for employment and they give a list and she's just like, I don't know what to do. And so she gets nothing done. And then she comes back and maybe she's just one of the women who quote unquote, isn't working in the shelter, but, or, or maybe she's just really irritable. I mean, if you have just sustained brain injuries, you might be irritable. And if you have bright lights or a lot of commotion or a lot of noise around you, that's going to be harder for someone who's just sustained a brain injury than for somebody who has not to, to be able to take in that information and not get irritated. So just the knowledge that this is here for everyone involved is huge. And I really believe that shelters should be set up with sort of a neuro rehab component. A part of their program should be set aside to respond to women who have experienced partner-related brain injuries. And there are no shelters that really have anything like that, except for there are actually a couple. But aside from that, it's generally just not something that's there. I can imagine it also changes what first responders should know, meaning police that come onto the scene if somebody calls the police, if there's medics that come to a scene of domestic violence. I can imagine that that would also change how they should be talking to the women who have been beaten or who have sustained such brain injuries because they might think they're unreliable, but in fact, they're just very confused due to that brain trauma, no? Exactly. You said it perfectly. They could be considered to be unreliable or they're just, you know, a hostile witness. So if you just want to take an example, a police officer comes to the door and the abuser opens it and he seems calm and cool. Nothing really happened here. And she seems out of it and she seems irritated. And then he says, well, 
you know, you just said you were in the bedroom, but a minute ago you said you were in the bathroom. How did you get from one to the next? And she says, I don't know. Then she may sound like she's making stuff up. She can't even keep her story straight. And he's saying, oh no, she gets like this. We were just arguing and she's overly emotional. And really what may have happened is he may have knocked her out in the bathroom and then dragged her into the bedroom or maybe she walked into the bedroom but has no memory of it because of the post-traumatic amnesia. Of course she has an unclear timeline because she doesn't have the timeline in her brain. And he's here with a very nice, consistent, clear story. And so who is gonna be believed? is probably going to be the person who seems more coherent. And, you know, it's certainly common for um, drugs or alcohol or substances to be used um, in all different situations. And so if there's a beer on the table or, or anything that looks like there maybe substances are used, of course, something like that also looks like someone who may be using substances. So that may be also an assumption made by whoever is at the door. And that, again, that could be a police officer or a paramedic, um, whoever. And then when you get to the judicial system, say a woman wants custody of her children or you're trying to press charges, all of that is gonna play into what the judge gets. I mean, there's gonna be a police report and then she's gonna have to try to tell her story which she can't necessarily tell. And again, he's going to have a nice, clear story. And he's going to say, oh, yeah, well, we argue. I'm perfectly happy to go to the classes. And she can't really give a clear story. And he may end up with the kids because she seems less reliable than he does. So it's very important for everybody involved to understand the possibility of brain injuries occurring and then the consequences and how they may manifest and from a medical point of view, if you recognize brain injury early, is there something more that can be done? Is there a specific treatment that people need immediately? Sometimes you want to go and get a scan just to rule out the possibility that something worse has happened. But a scan is not something you want to get just because you want to say, did we have a brain injury here? Because if it's a mild traumatic brain injury, a scan will not typically pick that up. Some types of skin may pick up injuries to the neck if there's a strangulation-related HIBI, like um, a hypoxic ischemic event. But really, if you want to rule something worse out, then you may have some type of brain scan. But it's never a bad idea to have a medical professional check everything out. Now, in terms of what do you do, there's no magic pill for brain injury. There isn't. But and I think that's what people often want. Like, what can we do? But there is treatment and the treatment is taking care of your brain. I'll just use an example from sports because that's something that's been studied ad nauseum. I mean, there's so much research and, and preventative care, et cetera, in sports. When a student, for example, gets a brain injury or you know has a concussion, they are not allowed to go back and play the game until certain criteria have been met. And so they may be having to take certain tests. They cannot have any symptoms. So if they still report headaches or any nausea or dizziness or you know fog and you know sort of inability to focus, they're not allowed to go back to the game. And in some cases, they're also not allowed to go back to school for a little bit. And so there's this gradual return to regular activities and then a gradual return to play 
so that they don't sustain additional brain injuries, first of all, and also so that their brain can recover. Because if you do sustain other injuries, and if you do keep pushing your body the same way as you would if you didn't have a brain injury, that brain injury and the, the consequences of that brain injury, it's going to take much longer to recover. So there is a treatment and the treatment is really basically listening to your body, pulling back on activities that are exacerbating your symptoms and only going back to them when you feel you can. Because not only are you going to not be able to do things the way you need to be able to do them, but you're actually more likely to sustain another brain injury because you're not quite all there. And when you sustain a brain injury on top of another brain injury, then things start to really get more compounded and things start to get worse and worse. So that is why it's really important to recognize if you have a brain injury. The sad part is, is it's not necessarily possible for women who are in these situations to do that. It's like they may say, oh, this is really ridiculous. I can't. I mean, I have to take care of my kids. I have to do this. I have to do that. And I respect that. And so that's why we need changes in, in the system and, and, and how things are done. We need to have accommodations for women who may be sustaining brain injuries. And we need to have a recognition that brain injuries are occurring just like we do for sports. We have so much infrastructure, so many recommendations, so many supports for individuals who are playing sports who have agreed upon, you know, this is voluntarily agreed to play a sport. Whereas women who are being battered and abused and beaten virtually have not. So I think that's, that's where we need to go. With your work and with your advocacy, have you been able to wake up more people who are in charge of shelters, more politicians, more lawmakers, law enforcement to this problem? Yes, some progress has been made. It's truly a global public health epidemic. It's two-tiered because on one level, it's looking at the brain injury specifically, but on another level, we really want to do what we can to curb partner violence more generally. So it depends on what level you're looking at it. There's a couple of shelters that have actually made accommodations for brain injuries, but literally, I think I know of one or two of them. And I have gone into police departments and given presentations on this. Did it make a difference in how they did things? I'm not sure. A couple of officers came up to me afterwards and said they really appreciated it. But I'm not at the stage where I could say whether or not I actually had an impact. But we are getting out there. And I know I'm not the only person who has tried to reach police departments. And I know in terms of lawmakers, there was a report that was done. Some senators basically said, we need to find out more about what's being funded in terms of intimate partner violence-related brain injury. And they investigated it. And they actually generated a report based on their information. So that was awesome. So there are things that are moving forward, but I feel like it's a you know, it's the drop in the bucket of what's really needed. We do need more senators and government involvement. So how do we scale this up? Do you have any suggestions how one can scale it up? It's a really tough one, but I do think it depends on how we want to approach this. So there's just sort of approaching violence against women. And then there's approaching the specific brain injury 
that occurs from violence against women. Ideally, we get to the source of it and we stop the violence. And so I think there are things that we probably want to do there. For example, in the United States, a lot of the money gets funneled through the justice system. And that's not necessarily a good way to go because that's not necessarily helpful, right? There are ways it may be helpful, but ultimately more funds should just be directed towards helping women and survivors if we're going to speak at that level versus the prevention level. And then the other thing is for me, education, and I think education needs to start really young. I don't think we can rely on parents to teach their children how to have healthy relationships, which is unfortunate, but I think it's true. And part of it is because parents haven't necessarily experienced healthy relationships themselves. So just as we have science and math and English, they're all important subjects, don't get me wrong, but I can't think of anything that's more important than learning how to establish a healthy relationship and be in healthy relationships with your peers, with your colleagues, with your elders. And that is really missing. So I literally think we could have a curriculum that would follow children from when they're younger, all through grade school, et cetera, that teaches about healthy relationships. And there are some programs out there that do that. So it's not like a crazy idea. It's just, it's not implemented. I know I never had anything like that. And I knew very little about it until I started saying how important this was. On a more positive note, I think there are things that we can do that can make a difference that require no money and no real infrastructure. And one of them is sort of empowering women that we know may be in abusive situations and talking to them, opening the conversation. If I were in a bar last night and somebody hit me over the head with a beer bottle, I would be like, oh my gosh, I was in a bar last night. Someone hit me in the head with a beer bottle. It was horrible. We pressed charges. Yet, if I were in my home and my husband hit me over the head with a beer bottle, I don't necessarily want to tell people that. That's not necessarily something that comes out. People don't want to talk about that. We want to decrease the stigma as much as we can so that women and men and whoever can talk about this and check in with friends and neighbors and loved ones and make sure that they're safe. The other thing is empowering our youth to be sort of ambassadors for change in this area. Maybe it's a fundraiser. Maybe it's a little challenge where people make bracelets and give them out to women, which is what my niece does. And it's a huge project. Beats for Hope is this big program now. So I think there are different things that we can do that don't require a lot of money and infrastructure. And so I would just say on a positive note, let's try to work on those in concurrence with trying to make these bigger policy changes and other changes that we know will take some time and money and education, et cetera. Thank you very much, Eve, for talking to us today. To learn more about the OECD's work on violence against women, please go to www.oecd.org gender. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com OECD.